What is Christianity really all about? Here in an ongoing effort to try and dispel some of the confusion is Marv Wiseman with another session of Christianity Clarified. The Reality of Satan Throughout the Bible, as early as Genesis and as late as Revelation, Satan is described as the archenemy of God, automatically making him the archenemy of the Jewish people and all of us as well. Satan, the adversary, is everybody's enemy. As a combatant, his goal is to confuse, distract, deceive, and destroy. He wrote the manual for it. Satan provides ongoing tutorials for how his minions can contribute to human chaos and destruction. Their proficiency appears obvious. And no, we do not sell humanity short when it comes to people contributing their fair share of calamitous activity. We humans can be responsible for creating plenty of mayhem without the devil lifting a finger to help us. In fact, one wag is quoted as saying, Christians can engage in behavior and lay the blame at the devil's doorstep that might make him blush. No argument here. In the game plan, the methodology of the adversary, it seems to work thusly. Knowing there is no way to oppose the Almighty directly, Satan does so indirectly. He seeks to inflict damage and death upon those God loves and cares for most. That would be Jews and Christians. His activities have created what is called the cosmic conflict, the ongoing struggle between good and evil. Admittedly, there comes into play thorny issues involving human volition, the sovereignty of God, the limits placed on Satan, versus the extent to which he is at liberty, and so on. Being unable to answer those as we would like, we are limited to dealing with what we think we have somewhat of a handle on, trying not to create faulty assumptions of our own along the way. It's well known that man's first encounter with the adversary surfaced in Genesis 3, while our first parents enjoyed the provisions of the Garden of Eden. Whether Satan was involved in Cain's murder of his brother Abel is not specifically stated. Either Satan was involved, or if not, then Cain's slaying of Abel would illustrate that fallen man was quite capable of murder apart from Satan's influence. So, as stated earlier, man does not need Satan in order to do evil in his own way. Still, Satan is not content to settle for man's crimes against man. He insists on contributing also, and when it comes to humanity, Satan has drawn a bullseye on the backs of the Jewish people in particular. Being unable to get at God directly, Satan aims to deceive and destroy those upon whom God has set his affection. You mean God still has affection for the Jews? How then did he even allow the Holocaust to occur? And that's upcoming. The Historic Targeting of the Jew In more recent times, particularly during the 1930s and 40s, the butchery and murder of Jewish people by the millions became known to the world in what has been labeled the Holocaust. 
Attributed to Adolf Hitler, who propagated the nonsense of the racial superiority of the Nordic peoples, Jews, merely by their ethnicity of Jewishness, were considered substandard, or as not even fully human, and as such they were labeled a blight on all who belonged to the so-called superior race, and must be prevented from breeding more of their kind. And the best way to assure the Jews do not produce more Jews is simply to eliminate the Jews that are. Their merely being Jewish disqualified them as being worthy of life itself. A whole spate of manufactured charges against Jews was efficiently spread to the masses throughout Germany and Europe. The Nazi propaganda machine reached heights of success that had never been known before. To the puzzlement of many who did not buy into the anti-Jewish propaganda, the question was, how in the world did anyone, even those fueling the hate-filled Nazi regime, how did they ever come up with such nonsense? How could anyone with any degree of intelligence arrive at the absurdity of a Nordic super race like that fostered by Adolf Hitler and his henchmen? Well, the answer is simple. Remember an earlier session of Christianity Clarified that revealed how humans reason with a warped or skewed intellect? Remember how the fall of our first parents involved not only a toll taken on their physical body, which eventually ended in their deaths, but a toll taken as well on their mental ability? A fallen or compromised intellectual capacity allows humans to arrive at the most harebrained ideas imaginable. And this is not in reference to people with a low IQ. Quite the contrary. Harebrained ideas can come from the mind of an otherwise very intelligent person. The leaders of the Nazi regime, including Adolf Hitler, were not stupid people, not ignorant people, not at all. Evil, yes, but not stupid. Call them cleverly evil, but don't call them stupid because they weren't. The idea of a Nordic super race is precisely the kind of intellectual claptrap a warped human intellect can come up with. And it is but one of dozens truly bizarre findings the human mind can contrive. While the Nazi murder machine of the Jews serves to highlight the kind of skewed evil thinking that was out there, what was and still is lost on the minds of many is that it has always been out there, but not portrayed on such a massive scale as the Holocaust. It is still out there, and it is not going away. Next up, reaching backward and forward, it will be most enlightening, and we will start backward. The previous session of Christianity Clarified spoke of reaching backward and forward as regards the Jewish people and their principal adversary, the devil himself. And what is meant by backward and forward refers simply to the historical aspect of Satan's persecution of the Jewish people, coupled with the prophetic aspect, because both the past and the future are replete with the interaction of Jews and Satan. And while we're at it, we must also throw in the present as well. A current rise of anti-Semitism is undeniable in several parts of the world, and appears to be intensifying. From what the scriptures reveal, this should not surprise us, but even be anticipated. 
But before looking ahead prophetically, we must look back historically. And when we do, we quickly discover the initial incidents of deception involving our first parents. It appears that Adam and Eve, in their innocence and naivete, were no match for the deceitful wiles of the seasoned veteran of rebellion. Appearing as one of God's creatures in the form of a serpent, Satan successfully created doubt in the mind of Eve regarding what God had told them about the forbidden tree. Being equipped with a God-given volition that allowed her to make choices between complying or not complying with God's directive, and between complying or not complying with Satan's temptation, Eve chose the latter. The fall of all humanity was now underway. It would soon be completed when Eve offered the same option to her husband Adam, and he too exercised his volition. Adam opted to join Eve in her disobedience. The fall was now complete. Though involving only Adam and Eve, it must be understood that it affected and infected all their offspring, beginning with their firstborn son named Cain. It also includes us, all humans, who came before us and after us, because all of us were in Adam. Thus, in Adam, when he sinned, we all sinned. We all were automatically, as his offspring, destined to become what Adam our father had become, that is, a self-centered, sinful being. We, too, are separated from God and under a sentence of death that claims us all, just as it did then and just as God said it would in Genesis 2, when he gave them the original prohibition. This all, of course, predates any reference to anything or anyone Jewish. Yet, immediately following Adam and Eve's alienation from God, a remedy of grace is promised to them and all their descendants, including you and me. And the remedy will turn out to be Jewish. As Jewish as Jewish can be. And it is super exciting. And it is, or he is, upcoming. Satan in Human History an amazing display of God's grace and mercy was revealed almost immediately following the need our first parents created for it. No sooner had destructive sin arrived on the scene, but the redemptive remedy followed close behind. It was to Satan himself that God spoke of the adversary's final doom, and it consisted of Satan's temporal victory in his delivering an injurious wound on the seed of the woman. It would be realized by the serpent striking the heel of the woman's seed. Yet, her seed would survive the wound. In turn, the woman's seed would crush the serpent's head, implying a mortal blow he would not survive. Calling upon the remainder of Scripture to interpret this for us, there can be but one explanation. The seed or descendant of the woman would be none other than the Redeemer, the one providing the antidote to the poison of the serpent. And that antidote would be nothing less than the substitutionary death of the Redeemer. But his death would not be his end. The reason being, he would rise again out of that death. For the adversary Satan, there would be no future survival. Revelation chapter 20 reveals his final end. Now, how this would play out is not at all clear from the Genesis 3 passage. 
But as the remainder of the Bible discloses, there can be no doubt the promised Redeemer who would arrive 4,000 years after the promise was given would be none other than the Son of God himself revealed to be Jesus of Nazareth. But what would happen to the promise of that Redeemer's coming when the entire first world perished in the flood of Noah? The answer was, the one carrying that seed was on board the ark he had helped his father build. His name was Shem, brother of Ham and Japheth. Shem would be the connecting link preserved by God to carry on the line of the promised seed. The table of nations found in Genesis 10 lists the descendants of Shem, along with those of Ham and Japheth. And fast forward, if you will, to Matthew chapter 1 and Luke 3, and a more complete genealogy is given. Matthew is going back to Abraham, and Luke's all the way back to Adam. What both have in common is their miraculous convergence on none other than that promised seed of the woman, the promised Redeemer, Yeshua HaMashiach, the Son of God, Son of David, Son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And of the three sons of Noah, it was through Shem the Messiah would come. Shem is the father of the Shemites. Today we drop the H and call them Semites. Those in opposition to the Semites are called anti-Semitic. Heading the list is none other than Satan himself, followed by numerous polytheists like Haman in the book of Esther, and of late, a Jew hater named Adolf Hitler, and numerous lessers followed by anti-Jewish haters of today. None of them have any idea they are but duped allies of Satan himself. But such will become quite obvious upcoming. Satan Rules Planet Earth, Part 1 No doubt the statement, Satan Rules Planet Earth, will be met by opposition and disagreement from some. We would all prefer to believe God is ruling planet Earth, or if not God directly, at least humans. But that Satan really does rule is a truth not to be denied. Certainly not preferred, but not to be denied. And if such be true, that Satan rules planet Earth, how did this come about? We know from Genesis 1-1 that it was God himself that created the heavens and the earth, but where in this does Satan come in? He actually predates the creation of earth, including, of course, Adam and Eve. Our best calculations, based on Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, find Satan to have originally been named Lucifer and appeared to have been the crowning achievement of God's creative ability. He chose to use the volition God gave him to rebel against the Creator with the idea of displacing or somehow being equal to God. Not content with his own rebellion, Satan succeeded in recruiting one-third of the fellow angels to follow him. Such is inferred from Revelation chapter 12. And as best as can be determined, those one-third of fallen angels became the demonic spirits revealed in the Bible, particularly during the time our Lord was on earth. Jesus had numerous encounters with demons and relieved many who were tormented by them by casting them out. Satan has enjoyed remarkable success in his endeavors. Not content with merely recruiting followers from the original angelic sphere, 
He seeks to engulf the entirety of humanity as additional recruits. And he has succeeded and is succeeding in accomplishing this. His game plan centers upon distraction, deception, and destruction, ending ultimately in death. The degree to which he has already succeeded is described in 1 John 5.19, where the text refers to the whole world lying in and under the power or sway of the evil one. It conveys the idea of the world at large being in the lap of Satan and quite comfortable being there. You see, there is an essential compatibility between Satan as a fallen angel and the earth as a fallen planet populated with fallen people. What else could be expected? This is what we've got, and this is how we got here. What else so thoroughly explains why the world and the people in it are as they are? And into this world came the Son of God himself with a game plan of his own called Redemption and the Gospel, or Good News of the Grace of God. It alone is able to confront the lies of Satan with the way, the truth, and the life. It is indeed nothing short of a cosmic conflict of the ages, begun in Genesis and concluded in Revelation, and we are all in the very midst of it as it continues day by day. Read the end of the story. Truth and the gospel do prevail. Revelation 19 through 22 make it clear. Satan Rules Planet Earth Part 2 what could be clearer in establishing the reality of Satan ruling planet Earth than the description given by St. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? Here he states that the main obstruction to the gospel of Christ is the fact that Satan, the god of this world, blinds the minds of unbelievers who are in the very process of perishing. This blindness obscures men's minds from seeing and receiving the truth. They are deceived, deluded, distracted, and destroyed. The gospel of the truth of Christ is the only possible antidote to Satan and his lies. And this is why Christ died to provide it, and why the Apostle Paul died to proclaim it. And who was Christ but the very Son of God, the Word of God that became flesh, as that baby in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago? How did he get here? He came through a lengthy genealogy of humans who came from one of the children of Noah, namely Shem, brother of Ham and Japheth, described in Genesis 9 and revealed in Matthew 1 and Luke 3. And who were these people from Shem? They were Shemites, or Semites, and the branch of Semites with which Jesus had to do are known as Hebrews, or Jews. And from the Hebrews came the Bible which is the only explanation on the planet that lays out the whole business of it all. Thus, salvation is of the Jews. Jesus said so, and he ought to know, in talking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. This Jew, named Jesus the Messiah, literally became the message, the good news. He did so by balancing the moral scales of the universe in settling the sin debt of all humanity. He, and what he did in dying for the sins of the world, would provide the message of redemption and forgiveness through his shed blood as the price he paid. Christ died for your sin, yours, mine, everybody's. 
And even though Satan ruled this world, Jesus Christ invaded it by coming into the world that did not welcome him. He came into his own, and even his own received him not. And these were his own Jewish people who did not receive him. They still don't as a people. But there were those Jews who did as individuals, and eventually one called Saul of Tarsus, a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. And this Jew was accosted by the risen, glorified Jesus on the road to Damascus and was charged with the responsibility of proclaiming the gospel of the grace of God. This would be God's invasion tool and strategy for confronting the world that lies sleeping cozily in the lap of the God of this world. Satan does not take kindly to the invasion and intrusion into his domain, and he has marshaled opposition forces everywhere. Do you not see how the Jew is critical and central to this, all from Jesus the Jew who provided the gospel to Paul the Jew, called to proclaim it? Indeed, salvation is of the Jew, even if most Jews themselves don't believe it. Satan Rules Planet Earth Part 3 Monumental and far-reaching consequences were at stake when Jesus confronted Satan prior to beginning his public ministry here on earth. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all described the encounter called the temptation. One of those three temptations put forth by Satan was his stated willingness to hand over planet earth to Jesus, provided Jesus would bow down and worship him. Such, of course, would have meant nothing less than the Creator Himself worshiping the creature. Nothing could have been more unthinkable. Such just goes to show us the incredible arrogance of the adversary, Satan. Still, he had the unmitigated gall to do it. Fallen men are not far behind. How many of us mere humans believe ourselves to be our own God? <laughs> we rest our case. The pertinent question about Satan making the offer to Christ to give him all the worlds if Christ would bow down and worship him is, was the world Satan's to give? Of course it was, and still is. Adam forfeited his God-given dominion of the earth when he rebelled against his Creator. Dominion and the right to rule over all God created on earth was given Adam and Eve in the very first chapter of Genesis. Lord of the planet, if you will. That was Adam's official position. All of creation was subject to him as its federal head, and there was only one head to whom he must answer, that of the Creator himself. Adam and Eve, by believing and obeying Satan, automatically disbelieved and disobeyed God, forfeiting their dominion and transferring authority to Satan. As Satan took over and began exercising his dominion over early earth, his influence would not take long to surface. The first human being born to man and woman would murder his own brother and then lie about doing it. Cain was a chip off the old block of Satan, the new god of this age. Fast forward, if you will, another thousand or so years, and the planet Satan rules is awash in violence, mayhem, and evil of every sort, so much so that the Creator destroyed Satan's planet except for salvaging it with one family still uncorrupted. And from Noah and his three sons, 
the planet would have a new beginning. And of those three sons, it would be Shem, who would be the parent of a race of people through whom the final solution to the world's problem would come. That would be none other than Jesus, a Jew born in Bethlehem and reared in Nazareth, arriving on the scene some 3,000 years after Shem, during which 3,000 years the new world had returned to its old ways of evil. What else would you expect, given the identity of the God of this world, who was and is continuing to run the show? He works with the compatible self-centeredness possessed by fallen humans. And even though his doom is certain, Satan continues to wreak havoc. Satan Rules Planet Earth, Part 4 While it is certain that God the Creator rules over all, it is also equally certain that Satan, as the God of this world, calls the shots much of the time on much of planet Earth. He can do so because our first parents, to whom God originally gave the dominion of the Earth, forfeited the same to Satan, who gained it through deception. That God gives Satan a certain amount of latitude is obvious, not only from Scripture, like that recorded in the book of Job and elsewhere, but it is also obvious that Satan is confined by God to certain parameters. Whatever reign Satan has, coupled with the self-centeredness of all humanity, it is this combination that continues to plunge the world into moral and spiritual chaos that only accelerates toward the end of this age. While there is much to God's strategy that we humans do not understand, we do know God is ultimately the controlling force, while Satan continually seeks to expand and deepen his influence on the world. Some have described Satan like a mad dog on a leash, who seeks only to deceive, tear, and destroy. But God holds the end of Satan's leash and allows him to pursue only what God is willing to permit. In our human limited perspective, we are often puzzled why God does not bring down the curtain post-haste on this infernal adversary. And he has already assured us that this is precisely what he will do. Only he will do it in his good time, not in the time we think he should. In the meanwhile, the gospel containing God's only remedy continues to make its way into the hearts of men, one sinner at a time. And by the way, among these sinners, a category to which all humans belong, who of all people should be showing a newly discovered interest? None other than the Jew. It is hard to dismiss a surge of Jewish people coming to faith in Jesus as their Messiah and Savior as mere coincidence. Jewish people coming to Christ has heretofore been a very lean and meager reality, but not so much as late. Gentile believers cannot but be encouraged by this newfound interest in Jesus by the very seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And why should they not be awakened with a new interest? After all, it is they, exclusively, they, the Jewish people, who strategically constitute the very catalyst through whom God will reclaim the planet via the return of Israel's conquering king and Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, 
Jesus of Nazareth, crucified, buried, risen again, ascended and glorified. And they shall look upon him whom they pierced and mourn for him. So says the prophet Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 10. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Satan's Co-Conspirators, Part 1. It's incalculable. That's what it is. The price paid by Jews just for being Jews is, has been, and yet will be incalculable. And why this is so is due to multiple factors. Number one, Satan, their principal adversary, has painted a proverbial bullseye on the back of every Jew from the time of their persecution and slavery in Egypt to this present day. Does it not strike you as strange that this seemingly tiny entity called Israel and the Jewish people should have undergone what they have and continue to undergo, and why? Because they are Jews, wearing that aforementioned bullseye. Yes, it is true, it was they, the ancient Jewish nation of Israel, that turned down the offer of Jesus to be their Messiah. But adding to that, prior to that, and behind it all was and is the ongoing evil efforts of Israel's principal adversary, Satan himself. Compounding their reality is their own denial and ignorance of this very thing. Because how can you defend yourself against an enemy you do not even believe exists? Most Jews today not only reject the Christian New Testament, which would give them the rest of the story, they even reject the authority and validity of their own Old Testament, which they've always regarded as the whole Bible. And add to that denial... Many of Abraham's seed further deny not only the existence of a personal devil, but the existence of a personal God as well. Yes, even the God reputed to be the ancient God of Israel revealed in their very own scriptures. To be sure, it is nothing short of miraculous that the Jew even continues to exist. No thanks to their adversary, Satan. And no thanks to Israel who would have sinned and rebelled their way right out of existence were it not for the promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The only reason Israel has not been plowed under into oblivion is not due to the tenacity and cleverness of the Jew, though that is undeniable, but much more largely, it is due to the grace of God, who insists on dealing with Israel through His promises and mercy, rather than through his justice. That's why the Jew is still around, even with the bullseye he wears on his back. Are you at all aware of the price the Jew has paid merely for being a Jew? You should be, because only in understanding that can you even begin to connect the dots that add up to why things are as they are, how they got this way, and where it is all going. And the Jew is smack dab right in the middle of it all, whether he knows it or not, or whether he even believes it or not. We all need to know more about this. It is stunning stuff, the price paid by the Jew, past, present, and future. And it's all just ahead, so hang on tight. Satan's Co-Conspirators, Part 2. 
Who said it is unknown, but it should be noised abroad and memorized by us all, even taken to heart. And it is the statement, if history has taught us anything, it's that we haven't learned from history. This has proved itself true in so many ways, especially regarding the history of the Jew. Not only has the world in general not learned from history, but the Jew in particular has not learned from history. In fact, their own history from ancient time has been one in a special position as a chosen people with privileged information provided by a benevolent creator and still willing to turn their backs on him. And their backs, by the way, for the most part, are still turned on him. Again, proving that old adage of not learning from history, not even their own exclusively revealed history. In the previous segment of Christianity Clarified, the first of multiple factors responsible for the price Jews pay for being Jews was revealed to be due to Satan, their principal adversary, ironically, even unknown to them. The second factor is that which impedes not only the Jews, but all Gentiles as well. And it is the factor of spiritual and moral blindness imposed by the fall of all humanity in the persons of our progenitors, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve's literal existence is largely denied by the Jews, relegating our first parents to mere mythology. And this is, in part, what is meant by their blindness. And along with their blindness, the Jew, like the Gentile, is cursed with an innate self-centeredness which is the principal component of all the world's ills, wars, conflicts, mayhem, violence, disease, even death. And add to all those any other negatives that come to mind, and you get an accurate picture of the planet, past, present, and future. But is there nothing positive to add to all this? <laughs> to be sure there is, and a great positive it is. It is called the riches of God's grace, and all other positives issue forth from it. Chiefest, of course, of God's riches was his very own son sent to Israel for the purpose of reconciling the world to himself. And what was Israel's response to this gracious gift of the Savior sent to them? Eventually, essentially, Israel to God's answer was, thanks, but no thanks. And while a minority of Jews did embrace Jesus as Israel's long-awaited Messiah, the nation at large, especially the leadership presided over by the chief priests, Sadducees, and Pharisees, did not. They were indeed complicit in the arrest, trial, and death of their Messiah, even as the Apostle Peter charged them in Acts chapters 2 and 3. Historically and worldwide, the Jews have been accused of killing Jesus, and they did contribute to his death, as did others who were surprisingly responsible, and that is up next. Very surprising, to say the least. We have compiled a biblical list of those who were complicit, and you will be amazed at who all is on it. Upcoming. Christianity Clarified, Volume 47, Track 11, Satan's Co-Conspirators, Part 3. Any Jew who seeks to absolve himself or the Jewish nation for the crucifixion of Jesus their Messiah ought to give it up. They cannot be absolved. They were guilty. Guilty along with numerous others, some of whom will be revealed in this present segment. And some of them will no doubt protest their innocence. They, too, should give it up, 
because their guilt is undeniable no matter how long and hard they deny. So who all were these guilty partners responsible for the brutal murder of the Son of God? Let's name them as the scriptures make ever so clear. Heading the list of co-conspirators was one whom Jesus identified in John chapter 13. He revealed the traitor, saying, He it is to whom I shall give the piece of bread when I have dipped it. He dipped the bread and gave it to Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve whom Jesus had chosen. The second party responsible for Jesus' death was the Jewish high priest, scribes and elders of the people, Matthew chapter 26 and 27, and Mark 14, those with whom Judas conspired for the thirty pieces of silver. Then, the Roman Gentile politician named Pontius Pilate, placed over the Jews by the Roman Caesar, who was charged by Rome to keep the peace, collect the taxes, and send the money off to Rome. The Jewish establishment brought Jesus to Pilate because they wanted him executed. However, capital punishment was reserved only for those in Roman authority as the governing body. When Pilate learned of the religious overtones between the Jews and Jesus, he wanted nothing to do with it, since his concern centered upon the political, not the religious. Seeing a way out for himself, Pilate learned that Jesus was from Galilee in Luke chapter 23, so Pilate passed the buck, as it were, to Herod. Galilee was actually Herod's jurisdiction, and Herod just happened at that time to be in Jerusalem. So, off to Herod, Jesus was sent under guard. Herod was intrigued and received Jesus, most likely from curiosity. Having heard about Jesus performing miracles, Herod had hoped to see something of that kind when Jesus stood before him. The text says Herod questioned Jesus with many words, but Jesus answered him nothing. Herod turned Jesus over then to his soldiers who mocked him, putting a robe upon him, and then sent him back to Pilate for further disposition of the charges brought against him. Pilate and Herod had been at odds with one another, but it was Jesus and the accusation against him that provided a basics for mending the rift that had existed between them and their respective jurisdictions. So far, the Jewish establishment, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve apostles, and Herod are all in the dock as co-conspirators. The list of the guilty continues to grow just ahead, and the list of those culpable will be somewhat shocking. Those Involved in the Death of Jesus, Part 1 The Bible makes it ever so clear as to the multiple parties responsible for the crucifixion and death of Jesus. The average Jew in Israel during the time of Jesus, that is, the common people, heard Jesus gladly, followed him everywhere, and hung on his every word. Many were beneficiaries of the healing miracles Jesus performed. They lined the streets on Palm Sunday shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! These, the common people, enthusiastically received Jesus and had no part at all in demanding his execution. But as Matthew 21 reveals, 
The Jewish hierarchy was indignant at what the people were saying about Jesus and demanded that he silence them. These were among the co-conspirators we have mentioned, and they are unquestionably Jews. In Matthew 27, they are identified as the chief priests and elders. They told Pilate it was Barabbas they wished to be set free, and Jesus should be crucified. These were the very hierarchical religious ruling class in Israel that had hatched the plot with Judas to betray Jesus for that infamous 30 pieces of silver. And while it is true, to their credit, the average Jew embraced Jesus and welcomed him with their hosannas when he rode into Jerusalem, the same could not be said for this ruling class. These were they who had conspired, opposed, and plotted early on to rid the nation of Jesus of Nazareth. To deny their culpability is to reject the clear testimony of Scripture, and their being Jews was unmistakable. Thus far, as regards the culpability for the death of Christ, multiple parties are complicit. One, Judas Iscariot, a fellow Jew and one of the apostles handpicked by Jesus. Secondly, the Jewish chief priests and elders who plotted with Judas to hand Jesus over. Third, the Gentile Roman procurator, Pontius Pilate, who issued the formal execution order. Fourth, the Gentile Roman soldiers who comprised the execution squad that physically crucified Jesus. Fifth, Herod, to whom Pilate sent Jesus for his assessment. And Herod's unwillingness to intervene for Jesus was obvious when he sent him back to Pilate. Even though Herod was the ruler in Galilee, he himself was not Jewish, but an Idumean, a descendant of Esau. So thus far in this drama to end all dramas, there are clearly five separate parties responsible for the death of the Son of God, each bearing a different kind of responsibility, but each clearly guilty of humanity's greatest crime of the universe. And what made it the greatest crime ever was due to the identity of the one upon whom the crime was carried out. It was none other than the Creator Himself who allowed the creatures of His making to affix Him to the cross. Yet, the most stunning contributors of all to the death of Jesus are just ahead. Brace yourself for this. Those Involved in the Death of Jesus, Part 2 Throughout history, beginning with the first century, the Jewish people have been blamed for the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth, and in many quarters this continues to the present day. By some, the charge of deicide has been leveled as well. It is the term assigned to those thought guilty of killing God, because most who call themselves Christians believe Jesus to have been deity in the flesh as a member of the triune God. The term deicide, then, seemed only fitting and that there were certain Jews who were responsible, at least in part, for the death of Christ, is undeniable. Identified to date are Judas Iscariot and the chief priest with whom he conspired, but not all the guilty parties were Jews. Pontius Pilate and his Roman execution squad were Gentiles, as was King Herod, who was an Idumean. But now, another contributor to the death of Jesus surfaces. These we now begin to identify as contributors to Christ's death are the humanly unthinkables. Unthinkable 
that these in any way could possibly be involved as responsible. But they were. If conducting an imaginary court of law, here is one we would call to the witness stand, and we would ask him, Would you state your name, please? To which he would respond, I am the I am, Jehovah, Lord, Creator and Sustainer of the universe, and the Father of Jesus, the one whose death is being examined. And we would ask him, In what way were you, his father, responsible for his death? Said he, It was I who sent my son to be the Savior of the world. John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, stated this in the fourth chapter of his first epistle, And we have seen and do testify that the Father has sent the Son to be Savior of the world. And prior to that, John in his gospel wrote, Forty-four times that I, the Father, sent the Son, or that the Son came forth from me, the Father. And Isaiah in his seventh chapter, as well as other prophets, referred to a child being born and a son being given. Jesus was both. He was born as a human child, but he was given as the eternal son. My eternal son, to be exact. And tell us, please, why exactly did you give him? Surely not to die a death of excruciating crucifixion. The father might well reply, The manner of his death was not as important as the fact of his death. The manner happened to be the method of execution by the Romans at that time. Even so, Jesus knew full well what that would be, and in his humanity and deity, he agreed to it. It is true. I, the Father, gave Jesus my Son to die for the sins of the world. And more testimony is upcoming from that Father. Others Involved in the Death of Jesus, Part 3 The previous session imagined God the Father being questioned as to precisely why he sent his Son into the world. Supportive texts as to Jesus being sacrificed for the sins of the world are abundant, such as John 3.16 and 17, 4.42, 6.51, 1 John 2.2, 4.9, 14, 1 Timothy 1.15, and many others specifically state the purpose for Jesus' coming. Consider as well the Apostle Paul declaring in Romans 4.25 that Jesus was delivered up for the offenses of the world. If the Father is asked who it was that delivered up Jesus for the offenses of the world, he could only add that it was he, the Father himself, who delivered up Jesus. We know this because even though Judas was involved as well as the Jewish leadership, plus Pilate, none of these did so because of the offenses of the world. It was the Father who was offended by the sins of the world. The Father delivered up Jesus to pay the penalty for the offenses of the world. All the world, with its multiple offenses committed by all, positioned each person to be isolated from God due to their sinful offenses against God. Our state of sin is completely incompatible with the pure holiness and righteousness of God. This incompatibility demanded humans be separated apart from God and His presence. 
The fact of human sin is magnified because of the holiness of God against whom all sin is directed. Thus, the eternal destiny of every human, because all have sinned, became fixed. Separation from God and His righteousness could be the only arrangement that could satisfy justice. One may call this separation from God, hell, or whatever one designates it, but this much is known for certain. It is a place totally absent of God and totally opposite of heaven in every way. And such was the righteous deserved destiny of all humanity. And there was nothing sinful man could do to rectify his lot. Man in his sin and God in his holiness remained justly separated and were destined to continue as such for eternity. God was under no obligation to sinful humanity other than the dispensing of justice, because God, due to His righteousness, must be just. Yet, while God cannot dispense less than justice, He can do more. He can dispense mercy and grace. Mercy withholds what is deserved, and grace dispenses what is not deserved. But God, not obligated or owing man either mercy or grace, why should he dispense either? There is no reason why God should, but there is a reason why God would and did. It's the incomparable character and nature that describes God as love. Christianity Clarified, Volume 47, Track 15. Others Involved in the Death of Jesus, Part 4. Why did Jesus have to die? He did not have to die. He chose to die. Why did the Father have to send Jesus? He did not have to send Jesus. He chose to send Him. The Father's sending His Son and Jesus coming to earth were gratuitous acts of amazing love on the part of the Father and the Son. It was because God so loved the world that He sent His Son into the world, and it was because the Son was in complete concert with the Father that He was willing to be sent. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, we are told in John 3.17. The world was already in a state of condemnation. That's why Jesus came, to save the already condemned world. And how would He do that? How could He do that? The problem, as stated in the previous segment, was separation. Mankind, all of sinful mankind, was destined to be separated from the absolute righteousness and holiness of God. The incompatibility between Creator and humans was like a great gulf fixed between them. What was needed, desperately needed, was reconciliation. But sinful, self-centered man had neither the desire or the ability to effect such a reconciliation. This is why God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, the Scriptures tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Christ in His deity represented His Father, and Christ in His humanity represented mankind, and in His own body on the cross, the sinless God-man paid the sin debt of all humanity. Only because Jesus was who He was, and sinless as He was, was He able to do that. His being deity itself, He and He alone was able to render satisfactory payment, satisfaction for the corporate sin debt of the entirety of humanity. 
and because his sacrificial payment was of such magnitude, Jesus succeeded in canceling the sin debt owed by all of humanity. In his so doing, he balanced the moral scales of the universe. Justice had now been served and satisfied in the substitutionary death of Christ, and God is free to accept and embrace all who come to him through the sacrificial death of his own Son. In effect, God was letting all of humanity off because he did not let Jesus off. Jesus paid it all. Because the payment he made in his spirit being separated from his body, he died physically, and his spirit being separated from his father, he died spiritually. God was satisfied. The holiness and righteousness of God was propitiated, satisfied so that nothing more was required because it is finished. The door of God's grace is now swung wide open for sinful man to come to God through Jesus Christ, receive cleansing and personal forgiveness. Now, such an one is no longer doomed to a separate existence without God, but will instead dwell joyously in his presence throughout all eternity, all because Jesus paid it all. Others Involved in the Death of Jesus, Part 5 Our listing of all the parties responsible for the death of Jesus continues to grow. Already identified as those who bear the blame were Judas Iscariot, then the Jewish religious hierarchy of chief priests and elders who conspired with Judas, then Pontius Pilate, a Roman Gentile who officially signed the order of execution, then King Herod of the jurisdiction of Galilee and Israel, and then the Gentile Roman soldiers who physically carried out the crucifixion, and then one whom all would not only least suspect, but not suspect at all, God the Father, creator and sustainer of the universe, as first thought of as unimaginable as he could be, but far more essential in his involvement than all others who were present. There he was, Jesus on the cross, because the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. But however could he save it by dying on an execution stake? This concept so far transcends the logic and reasoning powers of the human mind, we are apt to call it nonsense. Yet there are numerous issues God deems worthy that we mere mortals consider unworthy. The scriptures reveal throughout that God's ways are not man's ways. Still, many humans are arrogantly disposed to believe our view of logic and reasoning is superior to that of God's. It's a common human condition. The Apostle Paul dealt with the same kind of man's thinking in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he stated that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are saved, that cross and what happened on it when Jesus died is responsible for our very salvation and forgiveness. So whether man accepts it or not, God makes it ever so clear that it was Jesus being made sin and dying on that cross that became the very reason God is able to forgive us. Jesus paid our sin debt. This is how he reconciled the world to God by dying on the cross, thus settling the sin issue that separates us from God 
and now allows us to come to God through the death of His Son, whom He sent to be the Savior. All that then remains, once He made this way open, is for us to personalize what Christ did for us by receiving Him as our personal Savior and substitute for our sin. It can now be shown how and why it is that God the Father was also so very much responsible for the death of His Son. It was all with us in mind. This fact provides us with this good news to preach called the gospel. And when people respond to the good news of Christ dying for our sin with our faith or our confidence in Him, we are forgiven and made a new creation in Christ. This is why God the Father is a responsible party among others for the death of Jesus. Have you ever seen it this way? It may be foolishness to man, but it is logic to God. Yet, there are still others responsible just ahead. Others Involved in the Death of Jesus, Part 6 Already noted on the previous segment of Christianity Clarified, have been numerous parties responsible for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Besides Judas, the chief priests and elders of Israel, Pontius Pilate, the Roman Gentile execution squad, all of whom may well be thought of as expected parties of responsibility. But, heading the list of the completely unexpected, God himself, the Father of Christ, steps forward and presents himself as responsible. Our human logic recoils at the very thought of the Father's active involvement. At most, we can only see the Father as passive, not active. But He was active. As Peter stated in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, Jesus was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. What? God predetermined and foreknew the death of Christ on the cross? Precisely. Not only was God not taken by surprise that Jesus, His Son, was put on the cross— he predetermined that it would be so. Such is called not only the wisdom of God, but an incredible demonstration of the love of God. Really? Love? Love to predetermine the cruel death of Christ on the cross? That's love? Pray tell me, for whom is that love? For you, for me, for all us sinners justly doomed for our sin. God so loved the world, that's us, that He gave His only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in Him might not perish for their sin, but enjoy God's eternal life. That's why all this is called good news. It's the gospel all Christians are commissioned to believe and to preach. It's been available for 2,000 years, and yet remains the world's best-kept secret. Christianity Clarified and other Christian entities are trying to proclaim this message far and wide. It is the only antidote to the sin issue that infects us all, and it is God's antidote. Never, never would humans have come up with such an arrangement as this. But God did, and He did so to demonstrate His great love for us, despite our sin and rebellion against Him. It is aptly called Amazing Grace. As referenced earlier, there is a moral scale for the universe, and it is God alone who sets the standard as the moral lawgiver. When created beings rebelled against the moral lawgiver, 
it effectively upset that balance. And when creation was complete in Genesis, God pronounced it very good. But that goodness was no longer in place when sin tipped that moral scale out of balance, revealing an imbalance. And among a myriad of other accomplishments Christ provided by the cross, he balanced that scale by settling our sin debt via his death. And still, there are even more participants just ahead. Others Involved in the Death of Jesus, Part 7. While the shocking truth is the very reality that God the Father gave up, handed over His only begotten Son to die for the sins of the world, it is equally true that the Son was willing to be given. And His motivation for doing so was the same as the motivation of His Father. It was because of the great love with which He loved us you and me and all the world for whom he died. Making it as clear as could be, Jesus stated in John chapter 10 that my father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. Speaking in Mark's gospel chapter 10, Christ was heard to say in reference to himself, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Here, as he often did, Jesus referred to himself in the third person singular as the Son of Man, a term most frequently used by him in referring to himself. And while, as has been stated, the Father sent the Son to be or become the Savior of the world, It is likewise true that the Son was willing to come and suffer as he did, knowing full well in advance what would befall him. None of the painful, horrible things that were to befall Jesus came as a surprise to him, but were fully anticipated. In other words, Jesus knew most definitely what he was getting into, from the incarnation as a baby in Bethlehem and the 33 years that would follow and still He was willing to do it. And on what basis? Motivated by what? Motivated by compliance with his Father and love for you and me. None of us can comprehend the depth and breadth of that love and motivation, but we can be so very grateful that the Father and his Son did. A telling statement of it all is uttered by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 when he was inspired of God to write, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his death, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. There we have it again. Romans 5, all wrapped up in the vicarious death and resurrection of our willing substitute who loved us in such a way that he gave up himself to purchase our salvation. What may I ask you? Is your response to that 
What do you make of that? Have you applied that reality to yourself? Adding up all those responsible. Well, there we have it. Or them. All the parties bearing responsibility for the cruel death of Christ on that cross. And they included Judas, the elders of Israel, the chief priests, Pontius Pilate, the Roman procurator, Herod, the Roman execution squad that carried out the physical placing of Jesus on the cross. Each of these were culpable in the free exercising of their will to play their part that put Christ on that cross. And it was for these very ones that Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Imagine that. What love is this? To ask forgiveness for the very ones carrying out the greatest injustice ever perpetrated on the planet and for the request to come from the very one upon whom it was perpetrated. The Father did not program all these participants to do as they did. They did so with the complete faculties of their own will. And God, knowing full well the decisions they would make when presented with the options they would have, He then orchestrated and built their decisions into His master plan that placed Christ on the cross for the sins of the world. Now then, have we overlooked anyone involved in that? Yes, we have. As if there were not enough already charged, consider the statement made in Hebrews chapter 9, where it is written that Christ offered himself without spot to God through the eternal spirit. Now, unquestionably, all members of the eternal triune Godhead are involved in the death of Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each had significant roles they fulfilled in addition to the several human participants mentioned earlier. Now, could there be anyone else? Yes, yes, indeed, there is. And who, pray tell me, remains responsible that is not already identified? That would be you. You and me. That's right. You, me, plus all the rest of humanity— this is why Romans 3 states that all the world stands guilty before God. Some, no doubt, will protest their innocence, but only because they are uninformed or self-deceived. As all the world died in Adam, so all the world is reconciled in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, and it means the price for our redemption is fully paid and its benefits are put to one's account by personally believing on Christ and receiving His salvation. In his death for the sins of the guilty world, Christ swung wide open the door of salvation, and we as individuals have but to walk through it. We do that as an act of our will. And if you have not done that, the good news is you may. Don't delay. Come just as you are. And when you do, you may be assured that God will welcome you with open arms just as you are, will fully, freely forgive you and give you the eternal life for which Christ died to make possible and available for you. Come, just as you are. God is waiting. He will not turn you away, but will gladly receive you. The Grand Profundity and Simplicity From the outset of Volume 1, Christianity clarified, strive to engage the deep truths of biblical revelation in simple, understandable terms. 
With this present volume being the 47th, the total number of individual segments is 940. Only the listeners can determine to what extent the series has clarified Christianity. With this present segment titled Profundity in Simplicity, there is no more profound concept to be undertaken than that of the revealed knowledge and wisdom of God. These are displayed in Revelation chapter 4, where the divine rationale is revealed for God having created anything. Twenty-four unidentified elders ascribe God's motivation for creation as simply being His good will and pleasure in doing so. Why it pleased God to create angels, humans, and matter is not revealed, only that it did. These declare that God is worthy for having created. And in Revelation 5, the 24 elders are joined by four living creatures, and together they sing a new song ascribing worthiness to God for then having redeemed what he had created. They are calling God worthy, both for creation and redemption. The word worthy conveys the concept of worth or value. God possesses a worthiness or value attached to his own person that is here acknowledged by his creatures. He is credited with worth and value unsurpassed for having created all things and for having redeemed all things. The time and distance between creation and redemption encompasses that between earliest creation and the redemption wrought by Jesus Christ on the cross some 4,000 years or so following the Genesis 1-1 creation. The great profundity that permeates it all is the grand design of the Creator in providing redemption, the need of which presupposes the fall or ruination of the original creation. This redemption the Creator actually took upon Himself to accomplish. As one songwriter stated it, the great Creator became our Savior. Never could or would humans contrive a plan such as this. A plan has elements or steps to it to be taken. This plan is called the plan of salvation. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, so that Christ, who knew no sin, was made to be sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. At the cross, at the cross, where we first saw the light, and the burden of our sins rolled away. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. Creation and redemption, profoundly simple and simply profound. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. You've just heard another session of Christianity Clarified with Marv Wiseman. To obtain your free compact disc of the program just heard, along with 19 related segments of Christianity Clarified, write to Free CD, Box 1464, Springfield, Ohio, 45501. Your help with postage and handling is much appreciated, but not required. That's Free CD, Box 1464, Springfield, Ohio, 45501.
preview of upcoming volume 48. Needless to say, the next volume, number 48, will reveal the cosmic conflict of the universe to continue and intensify. Ironically, the world has little or no understanding of what is in store for it. And such an attitude of ignorance is to be expected, in light of the world at large turning a deaf ear to the only source that could truly enlighten it. All too eager to dismiss the Bible merely as an ancient, outmoded item of literature with nothing of value to offer the current times, the world is effectively devoid of its truths to its own peril. The adversary, earlier identified as Satan himself, will continue to ply his wares of deception, confusion, distractions, and, of course, death, which is his ultimate goal. As indicated, his principal tool is deception. And this has been defined as causing people to think things are other than they really are. That is deception. And it all begins with information. When people receive data, information, they automatically begin to process it in their mind. This usually leads to reaching a conclusion based upon the information they considered. The next step, then, is to act upon the decision made. This is as old as Genesis. Mankind has always functioned in this manner. It's the very stuff of logic and rational thinking. But it's all dependent upon the information one is given for processing. Understand, then, how very vital is information and not merely information per se, but accurate and truthful information. And if it isn't that, then it's misinformation. And that actually may even be given from some in good faith, even though wrong, or it may be in misinformation given in bad faith, intended to mislead. We call that a lie. Still, People act on the information they receive, whether true or not, and it may lead to disastrous consequences. So, do you not see how very important it is to use great care in exposing yourself to information? Little wonder this is called the information age, because never, never in the history of humanity has there been such a superabundance of information and never has there been such a corresponding abundance of misinformation, much of which is designed to deceive. Upcoming consideration will be given as regards past information absorbed with ongoing consequences plaguing mankind to the present day. More and more we see the playing out of the faulty assumptions previously identified. So, we are encouraging you to continue on with us via Christianity Clarified so you can see firsthand how these faulty assumptions were erroneously arrived at by misinterpreting the Bible. It was and is true of the Jewish people. It was and is true of the Roman Catholics. And it was and is true of the Protestants as well. Because none of us humans ancient or modern, are immune to faulty assumptions and the erroneous doctrines built upon them. 
So you are invited to this truly serious investigation of the evidence, and you can decide for yourself regarding the conclusions reached. This is Pastor Marv Wiseman thanking you again for being a part of our investigative audience. Our email address and snail mailing address are on the face of this compact disc. May God richly bless you. Are on the face 